You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish and today the band is back together. We're joined by the one and only the master of disaster, the man with absolutely no plan. His (laughs) name is Abby. How's it going, buddy? How's it going? I, th- I thought you were going to say like the backup singer, like <laughs> the uh, the beat squad, the lead, sc- <laughs> yeah, the lead guitarist or so- something, you know, <laughs> the man with no plan. You couldn't be more accurate. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, how's As everything you, going, man? That's a name that's well earned. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know. It's, I've got a lot of people to thank. First one is Manish. That's right. Always. It's, yeah. it, listen, times are good. We are uh, recording an episode today on October 5th because we're going to be heading to MJ Biz. And, and when you're hearing this, we will be at MJ Biz. So uh, today's really just a you know fun little episode on um, something that you know we always talk about, which is improving your game. And yeah. to, go ahead. Oh no no! I was I was gonna say sorry. Yeah no, it it, it is a fun little episode, um, and uh, the markets are a little choppy right now. But mm-hmm. uh, you know we're gonna try to make the best out of it. Well, and and that's the key, right? I mean, Abby, you hit it on the head. This week, I mean, who knows by the time you hear this what the markets will be like? But this week it's been particularly rough. Um, I think it's a great opportunity, and I've been deploying that dry powder that I that I had. Uh, but you know, when when the markets are tough. Um, that to me, first of all, is a really humbling experience, and that's when you learn the most. And I always say to my, you know, say to myself, or, or say, you know, amongst ourselves, like you try to, you have to control what you can control, right? And we can't, mm-hmm. we can't control the waves of the ocean. We can only adjust our sails. So this is a great time to talk about. Look, what can you control? What should you be focusing on? What are some things you can be doing every day to improve your cannabis investing game or your investing game in general? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's very well said. You can't control the sails of the o- sorry. You can't control the waves of the ocean. All you can do is control your sails. Right. Very well. Very well put. So we'll go through the agenda today, and we'll and and to be clear, these are all things that Abby, you and I have had to learn the hard way. I've had to learn multiple times. And if anything, this episode is really a reminder to ourselves to keep you know on top of these lessons and and keep these top of mind uh, because it's an everyday process to always kind of sharpen your sword and be better at what you're doing. For sure, for sure. And you've got to stay relevant, right? Like like especially our listeners who listen to this podcast, that's one thing that you're that you're doing. The one thing that I've always found is, you know, there's a lot of news flow out there, finding the right news flow, finding the trusted like the right sources, and then most importantly formulating your own opinion so you can adjust those sales accordingly. Exactly. And and you I think you hit it on the head there with, you know, staying up to date, staying relevant. It's not just the news. Like Things change really quickly in this industry, right? So we'll, we'll and we'll go through the agenda right now. But basically, there's just you know kind of five overarching points that we have um, that we'll go through. But but you know really, you need to keep your finger on the pulse, and that's the beauty of this industry is that there's so much opportunity because things keep changing. You know, month to month, quarter to quarter that there really is opportunity for people who are dialed in and willing to invest the time Mm -hmm. um, to outperform in the short term, uh, if that is your goal. For some people, it's just going to be set and forget and and put the money away and and wake up in five years. And that's totally okay. Mm -hmm. Right. But for us, and I think a lot of people who listen, who, who are dialed in, we are trying to make the best decisions we can every day. Yeah. We're trying to beat the market as much as we possibly can. Right. Exactly. We're trying to position ourselves in the best possible way. Um, and I think there's opportunities, even in a down market, I think there's opportunities um, to reallocate or to outperform uh, if you are really paying attention. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's, and that, let's yeah. Right, yeah, and that's the first point. The first point is, <laughs> this is a throwback for some of our older listeners, but the first point is learn, 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 and pay attention. And from a mentality perspective, you know, investing in anything 
is a process and it's a journey and it's a way of learning how to think. Um, it's not something that you're just going to get overnight and you can't expect to just get rich for free, right? There's no free lunch in life. You can't just pick something up and learn it on day one and expect to get rewarded. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm going to add to that, so the learn, 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 and pay attention, of course, very vital, but I'm going to add one last point to that. And that's something that's sort of been um, the theme in my life right now. So learn, 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 and pay attention, but relearn. Relearn. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is go back, look at what you've done, look at what you've built, go back and some, sometimes look at, look at, look at your losers, right? And say like, Hey, why did you get it? Or why did I get into this? What, what was so compelling for me at the time? Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been doing that a lot recently because, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of positions that I have that are down from, from earlier this year. Sure. Um, and which I thought were high quality names back then. And, and they are still down. Right. So that, that, that does happen. And when I'm adjusting my sales accordingly, um, I'm going back and seeing, why did I keep this? And there's some names that I had where I'm like, Hey, look, listen, I did really get caught up in the hype. Um, even though I did learn about, you know, not getting caught up in the hype, et cetera, valuations. Um, I, it was, it was a, it was a name or, or, or a company or whatever that I got sold to. And what I started doing was I started selling like 99.9% .9 of the position. So let's say I had like a thousand shares. I'd sell all but 10 shares. And I just kept that line item as like a mm -hmm. reminder that I don't make that same mistake again. And <laughs> right now I have two of them. So <laughs> it's not going the best, but, uh, only two, that's not only, bad. Well, no, only two since February. Yeah. <laughs> that's not bad. <laughs> like, yeah. That could be worse. It, it could be worse. It could be worse. And, and so, look, Abby, to your point, right, um, a lot of what we're talking about today is the fact that uh, – and I'm by the way, I'm like notoriously bad at this – is like keeping some kind of system. So how often do we just sort of fly by the seat of our pants and go, oh, this looks good, this looks interesting, and just we buy and sell based on everything that's in our head, and we're not writing down day-to-day -day what we're actually doing or why we're actually doing it. And so what happens is – what I've seen is – People go and they buy a stock. Let's let's say, for example, they buy. Mm -hmm. Let's say they buy, um, you know, truly, for example, because they go, oh, like, uh, you know, West Virginia is going to be a great market, for example, which, mm -hmm. you know, is, is it's not. But, you know, just an example of that. Right. And then that's why they end up buying it. And, you know, three months later, six months later, the stock is up or down and, and people have completely forgotten what the original thesis was for buying it, right? And so the point I'm making is if you if you get in the habit of sort of documenting your thoughts, your ideas, your your investment thesis when you're doing something, it gives you an opportunity to go back and check, why did I do this? Oh, what was yeah. I thinking? Oh, I actually, I bought this because somebody told me that um, Florida was about to get a new reciprocal medical card program from other states. Six mm -hmm. months later, that hasn't happened, right? Should I reevaluate the thesis, right? So things like that, um, it's not even possible for most of us because we don't keep any kind of system. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? That's very, very, very well said because I do remember why I enter certain names, but I never remember why I add to names. Hmm. As you're saying this, I'm sort of racking my head the last time I did this exercise. You know, I usually go down my portfolio and I say, okay, this is why I bought this company. This is why I bought this company. But I don't actually go through and see when did I start adding to that company, right? Right, And why I started adding to that company. So that, that's, that, that, that's something that I don't do as well. And that's maybe something I should start doing going forward. Yeah, a lot of this is about taking the work that people are already doing and system mm. and making a system around it, right? So uh, this is something I've said before is that people have this idea that retail investors don't like to put the work in. Like they just want to show up, you know, hear a ticker on CNN or see it on Twitter and buy it. And mm -hmm. of course, that's true for some percentage of people. But the way I look at it is if you look at the people who are dialed into this industry, who are spending the time on Reddit and Twitter and listening to podcasts, Clearly, they are involved. Clearly, they want to put the work in. But the mistake that I see is people are willing to put the work in in the wrong areas. And I'll give you an example. Like last week, uh, there was a lot of people who were watching, you know, the C-SPAN live streams of, <laughs> you know, debates on the more act. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, on the one hand, you go, OK, maybe there's some value to seeing how the sausage is made on the house floor and maybe there's some value to that, but why not take that one, two, three hours that you were kind of casually watching that? Why not take that and invest it in building your skill set of investing? 
I mean, why? Like, it but amazes. Wouldn't, 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 wouldn't that be sort of them doing the due diligence or in that scenario, someone doing the due diligence as part of their investment thesis, right? Because, yeah, maybe it's not important to watch the full three hours because you do mm-hmm. get a summary of it. But maybe that person there picks up on something like tone. Because, um, you know, we, we had um, a guest on earlier. I don't know if it's going to come up before or after, but uh, his name was Seishu. And he, and he talked about earnings calls. And he said, like, you know, the reason that he likes listening to these earnings calls is because there's um, – he, he can really get to gauge the tone of the of the company, right? Something that you sort of you might miss if you're just reading a transcript. Sure. Yeah. I, so I, mean, I would. Yeah. So I yeah, would. I would disagree. Sure. And I'd say that that watching like a C-SPAN thing, it could be part of that process. Yeah. Look again. I'm saying there's and and look, there's a huge difference between listening to a company's earnings call versus you watching three hours of C-SPAN. In my opinion, right? Like I've never, I, I've never watched three hours of C-SPAN, so I can, de- or, yeah, yeah, I, I can never, yeah. And and look, people are probably watching in the background while they're doing stuff. But the the point I'm getting to is that like a guy like Seishu, he comes from a classically trained fundamental investing background, mm-hmm. right? So he has the skill set, the toolbox of investing. And that is really what a lot of uh, new investors lack. Like they don't know how to read a balance sheet. They don't know how to read a cash flow statement. You know, I've always said this alongside Nick Gastovich is that neither of us are CFAs or neither of us are really professional, you know, financial readers. But We've trained ourselves well enough to be able to read a financial statement and be able to gleam something out of it. And mm-hmm. a lot of investors, especially new ones, they just sort of go, well, you know, I, I'm uncomfortable reading financials. I, I don't want to do it. It's easy to skip over that hard work, right? But if you want to be an investor, financials are going to be there for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. right? If you're 30, 40 years old, that's a that's a skill set you're going to build for the next 20 or 30 years of your career. So why not invest and buy like, you know, accounting for dummies or or you know, there's a book my my dad had that teaches you how to read financial statements using a lemonade stand as an example. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you don't need to be a wizard at reading financials, but why not build invest in building that skill set because that's going to serve you for this industry and every other industry you invest in in the future. For sure, for sure, and, and and I couldn't agree with you more on on reading the financials. One thing that um, I started doing, and you know, I should I should have started doing this a long, long, long time ago, um, but it's been about a year or so now. But what I'll do is when when I when I do pull up the the like the quarterly numbers, I just have a spreadsheet that I've created where mm-hmm. I have like on the right hand side just like high level like you know you know revenue cogs EBITDA etc., uh, and then I'll just go and I'll fill it in quarter after quarter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's helped me just sort of be more like stay on top of it. And let's say if I open up a company spreadsheet, it's like, oh crap, I missed two quarters, right? Right. Um, and you know, there's a little bit of accountability, uh, and it also keeps me a little bit more engaged, right? Totally. Because, you know, my my biggest thing was okay, I would read this or I would look at it, I'd glance at it, whatever. I would remember it for like an hour or two, and then like you know, or whatever. I remember for a while, but then I I couldn't I wouldn't be able to go back and, and recall it. But because I'm being a little bit more active and updating something, the numbers update. You kind of look at it, and it just keeps you a little bit more engaged, right? So that's just for anybody who's sort of um, not necessarily just uh, like, like like gets anxiety over reading these statements, but it's just like here's here's a here's a quick way to do it that just breaks it off piece by piece. And as you go, you're going to start developing more and more, and you're going to start adding more line items. You're going to start looking at more things, right? Exactly. And going to the beginning, this is a process. Don't expect to be perfect at it on day one. You know, we had an email from somebody a while ago who said, you know, you guys talk about reading the financials on CDAR, but it's really hard. And I Mm -hmm. I try and these are all these questions I have. And I'm like, perfect. If you're struggling, that means you're doing it right. right? You're learning, right? Like that's really, I can't emphasize that enough. So last point on this is one of the things that, you know, the biggest mistake people make all the time in this industry is just not understanding the concept of valuation. They always focus on share price and they miss the uh, the number of fully diluted outstanding shares and, and they're completely missing and screwing up the valuation. And they're getting upset like, you know, why is this my company only getting acquired for this number? You know, that like, you know, the example is like Gage. Somebody said, uh, gotcha. why is yeah. Gage only getting acquired for, you know, 400 million when I think it should be worth, you know, 800 million. And I was like, well, look at like you're missing all of these super voting shares, which really increases the market cap and, and puts it closer to 600 million. Yeah. And and the response from the person was like, ah, yeah, but who cares about that? And I was like, well, <laughs> the company acquiring it cares a lot about that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So, so that's a, just a huge mistake people make that really, really can be solved um, just by improving your financial reading ability. Have you ever, so here's a little question for you on fully diluted market caps. Have you ever looked at like warrant pricing and you know, when, you know, it'll give you a line item and it'll give you a price of a, of a warrant, but if the warrant is still out of the money, do you still include that? Like obviously in a, in oh, yeah, all a the true time. complication, you, you, you should include it, but do you still include that? Not necessarily for a strategic acquisition, but like when you're entering the stock, like do you no, still yeah, yeah. I'll give you an example. I did this with Harvest, right? So when I bought Harvest in Q1 or Q2, mm-hmm. Harvest had a, a ton of warrants that were uh, way out of the money, right? So, uh, um, I, I look at the warrants and I look at where their strike price is and if they're in the money or they're close to the money, like the way I look at it is, let's say I think the company t- today is $2, right? And mm-hmm. I'm buying it because I think it can go to $3. Then I'll always look at where's the warrants, uh, the, the table of the warrants, where are all the warrants outstanding? Mm-hmm. If all of the warrants are outstanding at 250 and I'm hoping the company goes to three, I have to include that in my calculations. So sorry, that's that's a that's a warrant that's close to being in the money, right? I'm saying like, let's say they had like an eight or a $10 warrant. Yeah, so that would be like an Ianthus, for example, right? Tons mm-hmm. of warrants way out of the money. Yeah, right. you, can, you can exclude that, but here's my point. As long as your target price is under that warrant number. Yeah. Like if you're hoping the stock becomes an $8 stock, then you have to include those warrants. Right, right. No, of, of course. That that if 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 like depending on your time horizons and depending on how close you are to getting that warrant in the money, I fully agree with that. I, I was just curious more or less because like you know I have a column right now. It says shares outstanding, fully diluted, and then I have like this little like just asterisk valuation, right? Yep. Um, yep, yep. And I I put that in anything like let's say just like you said a target price that you set. I I've started veering away from target prices just because I've never <laughs> so bad at at calling target prices. Sure. Um, but I've started taking some of those shares out and I've started noticing that, um, well, I, actually, I shouldn't say this because I, I haven't started noticing anything yet on it. Um, but I will come back and I'll start, I'll start share with, I'll start sharing what I find from it. But, you know, my thesis right now is that, um, those warrants that are so out of the money are just, are, are just sort of irrelevant. They're outliers right now, um, in the short term. Yep. Yeah. I, I agree with you. So, uh, rolling, keep, keeping it going, um, you know, related to number one, you get to number two, which is, you know, as you start to dig in on your own and you start to, you know, look at financials, what you'll find is you'll find a disconnect a lot of times between what the company is telling you in their press release and on their earnings call versus what you're seeing in the financials. And, you know, early on, you kind of get confused because you're like, what's going on here? Like they're saying one thing. Um, I remember a classic of this was the origin house call, like back mm-hmm. in like 2019, Q1 or Q2, I think it was Q1. And uh, Origin House had this quarter where they had a huge increase in sales, but the gross margin was like 17% or something really weak like that. Yeah. And the, and the analysts on the call were like falling over themselves to be like, what an amazing quarter. Congratulations. And I was like, okay, I guess I must not understand what's going on here, right? Because what I'm seeing is a company that burned a ton of money and has really weak margins. And I'm not really understanding why. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the now the second point is you'll start to analyze it from the bottom up, not the top down, meaning you'll start to look at company level data and make your own opinions and you'll start to understand the story behind the story. So in that case, the story was the story they were telling was we're rapid growth. We're going to do you know, we're going to bolt on all these deals and then we're going to improve our margin. The story behind the story was, look, you can get a lot of sales in the distribution business, but margin is really, really tough and California is really competitive. And therefore, this is going to be a cash burning machine uh, because it's really hard to get to scale and 280 is a killer. Right. And, like, and like I wish, what? sorry, I was going to say, I, if I had been smarter at the time, I would have figured that out. But I learned that one the hard way when I got well, like, killed on that one. <clears throat> well, listen, like California is, you know, it, it's just a beast of its own. Um, so, I wouldn't look too much, too much on that. Um, but what, what I do want to say about that particular example or, or a very a, a similar an example to that is, okay, Q1 2019, you know, some companies didn't even have revenue at that time, right? Remember, mm-hmm. this, the story back then was still, hey, I'm trying to get a license. So the fact that the Origin House did have revenue shows that they were already ahead of the curve. So that's probably why sure. these guys were, you know, cheerleading it. The fact that they had gross profit margins, sure, 17% isn't crazy, but if you look at probably the earnings call beforehand, management probably said, and again, this is all just hypothetical. I don't know if this actually happened, but this mm-hmm. is just sort of going back and 
re- reaffirming the story. Management probably said, hey, we're going to do X, Y, Z in revenue. And they hit that number. And they probably also said, we expect our margins. Yes, they are. It's going to be competitive and they are very slim. But as our top line continues to grow, our do- like our net income or the dollar that we keep, right, will start to eventually go up. So because the management started showing a track record of, okay, well, they hit revenue, then analysts were probably like, okay, these guys have built up some credibility. Mm-hmm. They're the only ones who are doing revenue. We still have pre-licensed companies here. This is probably a good good buy, right? That's what I could possibly see happening in a situation like that. So I agree with what you're saying that sometimes the story behind the story, right? Like the the press release versus what actually comes out are going to be two very different things. But my question actually goes, maybe not to this, but my question to you is, have you ever seen an actual disconnect between the press release? Like in terms of they've listed an incorrect number? Um, because no, I, I, I I've mean, never that, seen that. I mean, no, no, that would be a mistake. That would be yeah. a, an error. I mean, what I'm saying, a disconnect is in the company saying one thing and you're hearing one like tone of positivity but the company's oh, not pointing to, you know, some the of the negative. negative factors. Yeah, yeah. And they never will, right? Nobody's they ever never press will. release. Yeah, no one's ever going to press release margin compression. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. And, and look, uh, another like I I, 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 get, I see what you're saying. Like you, you're saying, you know, you read the press release with 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 some expectations and you go and you look at the, the financials. And when you do your, your due diligence, you're like, oh, wow, like this tone is definitely not accurate or the story is not as rosy as it appears to be. Well, so, and that's one way of looking at it, you know, and, and this happens a lot when we look at private deals, when we're looking at, we're trying to figure out, okay, what is the company telling us? And then what do we think is the story behind that? And, and it's not always negative, by the way, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes the company um, has a different way of looking at it than I do. And and sometimes it's actually more positive for them, uh, the story behind the story. And I'll give you an example, like with Verano, um, with Verano, you know, when you f- realize the story behind the story, I think the story... The, the underlying story is the fact that this is a company that has um, been punched in the mouth a couple of times and has actually recovered remarkably well. So, for example, a lot of, some people don't know, but in, in 2019, they were supposed to merge with Harvest. That deal got dragged out by HSR and, and a really uh, unfriendly uh, DOJ under the Trump administration. And eventually that deal got dragged on so long that it made more sense for Verano to go off on its own and be the bigger company than Harvest. Mm -hmm. But in that time period, they lost a lot of ground because they gave up a lot of deals or or sold a lot of assets that Harvest had right to avoid the overlap. And so coming into 2020, that company was in a really worse position than it was in 19. Mm -hmm. But and so you look at where they are in 21, and now they've reversed that, right? They've gone public. They've merged in all these assets. They got AltMed in Florida. So the the story behind the story to me is actually really positive because it's like, wow, look at how these people are able to get punched and keep on going and recover and, and uh, actually make a positive out of it. Like that to me is very encouraging. Um, I, you know, I don't know that the company tells that story. I don't even know if they're aware that that's like this but to me that's my perception of it well so you know i think this the story you just gave right now going back to that origin house story right like that kind of just further reinforces this well so let's say verano now puts out a press release so they do some numbers uh and one of the metrics isn't really that compelling and i go to you and i say hey manish like listen i i came across this not really a big fan of this i think this story is not as positive as what the press release is saying you're going to be like hey listen this is what happened in 2019. These guys have proven that they can do this. I'm pretty confident that they're going to do this again. Does that kind of make sense? And then, in, like when, when then when you look at it, it's like, oh, okay, then this could be positive. Yeah, I mean, look, that what what that tells me is it it helps me understand the management team and their mentality and their capabilities. Right, right. It doesn't mean that they get a free pass forever. It just means that that gives me a lot of comfort in the quality of the company and the management, et cetera, et cetera, and why they are where they are today. Right. Right. So it's, it's not a blank, you know, a blanket statement forever. Another story behind the story thing is like, you see the OMMU data every week from Florida and mm-hmm. Cureleaf numbers going crazy, right? Just going off the charts starting in Q2 and Q3. And you go, holy crap, good for Cureleaf. And what they would say is, look, we, we ramped up our facilities and we have higher production, which is totally true. Mm-hmm. But then, my point with the bottom up is go look at the data yourself. Go look at the menus. Go look at the you know the Florida uh, patients Reddit forum, and you can see Cureleaf is doing 40, 50% promos. 
Mm-hmm. So, yes, they were able to capture a lot of share. Good for them. That's not easy to do. But they did it through really aggressive discounting. And for the yeah. first couple months, nobody was really talking about it. And so that just goes to this idea that you can't just rely on other people to get your information. Going back to that C-SPAN thing, you know, there's more productive uses of your time. And you can – like I, I'm amazed sometimes that people go, um, hey, are prices compressing in Pennsylvania? Do you think – you know, Cresco's doing well. Um, and I'm like, go look at the menu. You can go look at menus on almost every dispensary in almost every state. And you can see for yourself what's happening with prices week over week. Yeah, but you'd have to track that, right? Like you'd have to like, you. Like, I, I mean. So track it. That's yeah. my point, right? That <laughs> is my point, Abby, is, is the bottom up. Go look at the data to help make your thesis. But I would say, like you know, if if I went, because I, I think I asked you that same question in, in one market, because because and then now I've had to start tracking it week by week, right? But like when I was starting out to do that, and I I guess that's this is what you're trying to tell people is like you know, start and build the foundation so that you know a year from now when you look back, you can go back in your dad and say, okay, the prices are compressed, the prices aren't compressing. Um, I okay, I, I guess what I I do understand what you're saying there, but it's not again to be clear, you don't necessarily have to track every market every week. That's going to be really tough, right? Mm-hmm. But if you start, you can do to like say, once a quarter or something, right? You're basically sure. creating your own index. Exactly, and and the other thing too is there's there's not like I don't invest in every market, right? Florida's a big market for me. Pennsylvania is a big market for the MSOs. New Jersey's a new market that's coming online. So if you just pick a couple of key markets that you're really interested in, that's a more interesting barometer to me to kind of check in once in a while and see how things are doing. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea there is if you start to actually analyze the data, right, instead of just listening to what other people are saying, including us, right, you're, you're going to start to see trends and then you're going to be able to make predictions like yeah. which state is interesting, which state's getting more competitive. And then once you decide like, hey, like actually this this, for example, New Jersey, right, look, looks really interesting. Then you start going, well, what are the companies that are the best position in New Jersey and what are their market caps and who's going to have an outsized return on New Jersey. And, and that could be a short or medium term term uh, pop on your investment, right? That's that's one way of looking at it that you can make outsized returns in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That and, and that's a very like, I like, I really like what you say about focusing on select markets, right? Don't try to just don't look at the US as a whole. And you know, when I first started, that's what I tried to do. And you get overwhelmed pretty easily. Um, and then identifying those, those specific markets have some metrics that you think are going to be like, you know, very important, like, you know, total population, like average, you know, um, income, et cetera. That's how I started and then kind of drilled down a little bit more into it. Um, but no, I, I agree with you. I, I think that what you, what you're saying here makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, and it's just Florida's an, I don't want to say Florida's an easier market. Florida's obviously the most transparent market. But when you mm-hmm. get to these new markets, it is really difficult to find information on them. Right. So, I mean, like, so if you were looking at a new market, let's say you weren't starting out with the network that you've built, how would you start? Like, who would you reach out to? Well, it, it, you know, more fundamentally, like, let's take New Jersey. I start by going on the dispensary websites. What is the price per gram or per eighth that customers are paying at retail? Like that is the easiest place to start. Mm-hmm. And typically in limited license markets, the markup is uh, 100%. So if you're paying $60 for an eighth, the wholesale price is $30 an eighth, mm-hmm. typically. Right now that can adjust, but at least it gives you an idea and a range now. And if you go to, a, you see a dispensary website and you know the, the eighth is $40, the average eighth is $40, and in Illinois it's 60 you go, huh, what's going on here? Why is it that that way, right? Is this right. a more, more mature market? Like what's happening? Like these are the kind of things that you can start making a determination on yourself. And what you'll find is that in this industry, because there's so much information, because uh, it's so fragmented, you can actually get ahead of a lot of other people. You can get ahead of the analysts even because sometimes they don't catch on to something or maybe they do and they're not, you know, they don't want to say it or broadcast it to the public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So that's why I love putting the work in, in this industry because you can get the reward for it. Yep. Yep. And it's just knowing how to evaluate your time, right. Or sorry, how to allocate your time. And yeah. Like what to look at. Sure. That's a big part of it. So, uh, moving on. Right. So, um, kind of the, the flip side of that, we talked about, you know, finding upside in future markets. 
as you learn valuation, you're going to you should really think about evaluating downside. And this is one thing that new investors do not think about enough. And as a real estate person, we are taught, especially, you know, in the financing world to always look at downside, what can go wrong. And Abby, you know, you mentioned, you know, having some losers from February, like, you know, in, in stocks and equities, it's okay to take measured risk. And and sometimes if you're trying to hit a multi-bagger, yeah, there's potential for downside. But I always try to quantify where do I see this going on the downside? Is this potentially a zero? Uh, you know, if it's not a zero, where do I see it going down to? And what would what would cause this to be um to become a zero? Right. So I always try to ask myself, where is the downside in this and, and where could this go? Yeah, I mean, like, look, looking at the zero is extremely important. But one thing that I've noticed that's even more important of recent is looking at what it, can this go down half the value that it is today, mm-hmm. right? Um, because that's that's a more likely scenario for me to happen. And I've told you, I've, I've been pretty vocal about this. Is I usually put stop losses in, like that's how I protect myself on the downside. Sure, there's there's a lot of um, external factors that could affect prices that you can't just foresee. Right. Or you, you haven't taken into account for, for example, the Florida price, like the Florida price wars, unless if you're actually, you know, calling the dispensaries or going on the dispensaries, or going on that site that you found, uh, it's really, it's really difficult to see. Right. And you might feel like you have a good gauge or a good understanding of the market, but you miss that critical part. Then all of a sudden, you know, prices start going down or sorry, uh, prices for companies start going down. Right. Um, so I like to put in like a stop loss on it, but my question to you is how would you sort of evaluate the downside? You know, how do you, how do you answer the question? What's the risk in this deal? Well, the, the first key element is just trying to understand what the deal is. So let's take your Florida example. If you're a single state operator in Florida with, you know, a decent footprint and putting out, um, good, uh, you know, good, good output uh, in terms of your volume every week, like that to me is is a totally different deal than when you have some of these companies that are like, you know, trying to develop, um, you know, synthetic THC, right? They're just completely different things. So yeah. a, a scaled and established operator, in general, that's a that's a pretty stable business. Now, what what's the risk in being like a consortium, for example, like price compression in Florida, and you know, what are you going to lose a bunch of market share? Because Curaleaf um, and, and Trueleaf start discounting their product. So that's something that is a risk, but it's unlikely your business is going to go to zero, right? It could get cut in half right. or go down 20 or 30%. Yeah, You can mitigate that risk because you can look at the volumes every week, right? You can actually look at the OMMU every week and make sure that the company is not selling half of what it was the week before. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Right. So it's not only what the risk is, it's risk mitigation. So, okay. Well, this is the risk. How do I protect against this risk? Okay. But there's, they're like, okay. So using a a consortium and using Florida as an example here, a company, you know, a lot of companies are very deep in Florida, right? Another risk, this is very, extremely difficult to quantify. And we've heard people talk about it is uh, interstate commerce. If that happens, like, do you factor that a risk like that in, into your your equation, right? Because that is a risk, right? Yep. Um, but how how do you weight that risk? Obviously, yeah, sure. pretty low given all the discussions that um, we've had. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think regulatory change in general is something to look out for. And if you remember, you know, for years talking about Florida, I would always talk about the vertical integration. Uh, case, right? And that's an example of, you know, going back to the C-SPAN thing, I actually did listen to the full hour Supreme Court case of the vertical integration. Mm-hmm. And the, the rationale was, I think I'm like one of six people actually listening to this, but I think it's super, super important because if vertical goes away, right, what does that mean for truly? What does that mean for the... So it's, it's, Abby, to your point, it's keeping your finger on the pulse of those big regulatory changes and, um, talking to people about it and trying to understand what would actually change things for these companies. So that vertical integration case, that was a real risk. Mm-hmm. Now it got upheld by the Supreme court. So that risk went away. Right. But, but hold could, on. My question is, yeah. so let's, let's use that as an example. Did the price of the, the companies at the time, which I'm sure you're looking at truly, did they move accordingly? No, no, because nobody was paying attention. Because one thing, and we'll go on to the next point, which is about how the market actually works and understanding people's psychology, is that 
a lot of times some of these risks are totally not priced in and people do not worry about them or think about them until it's too late. Right. And you you think, okay, well, if vertical integration going away is such a huge risk, why is why are all the analysts not talking about it? Why am I not seeing research notes on it? Because the industry is not set up to give you all the inf- you know the best information. It's it's often set up to give you the information they want you to hear. Right, right, and 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 it's true, right? So I I guess what you would I guess to the the takeaway for this risk is you know you factor in you have a thesis you try to go prove that thesis or disprove that thesis, uh, and then for the external risks where they're like, they're very minimal. You just keep, you keep your thumb on the pulse there and you start looking at cracks, right? So for example, if that vertical integration thing did start catching wind, um, you would have known a little bit more about it than most people. And you would have started seeing maybe like, you know, like a, a re-rating in the price. And then you'd have, you'd be able to act accordingly. Yeah. And I actually think we would have been ahead of the price. Like, I think that, that, that news could come out and I would be ready to act on it because like if, if vertical had gone away, Mm-hmm. And and uh, I probably would have been first out of the gate to sell some of my Florida stocks before people even digested the information, right? Because I was again on it and making my own thesis. Now I'm not saying I would have been right, but I'm just saying that's probably how I would have looked at it. Interstate commerce, for example, that's not going to sneak up on us. No, like, it's not. That is going to be that's huge federal change that has to happen on top of you know probably a court case that has to take away the the legality of it. Like it's. It's not something that you're just going to wake up and interstate <laughs> commerce is going to be there. Like we know it has to go through federal legalization yeah. to get there. Exactly. It's it's like the, it's like that one quote, the revolution will be televised, right? Interstate commerce will be televised for sure. Everybody will know about it. Right. Right. I think it's a revolution will not be televised, but I hear Oh, you. is it? All right. Well, in that case. <laughs> <laughs> really? I, th- I thought it was the revolution will be televised. No, I, I, I think I heard it on like GTA or something. But yeah. uh, well, here. here. Well, I'm going to change. You heard it on interstate CNN. Commerce. Interstate <laughs> commerce will be televised. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's Fair the enough. new quote. Yeah. Well, OK. So look, rolling on here, um, this has to do with like learning how to take the temperature of the market at, and even deeper than that, learning how to understand how the market actually works. And and Abby, you know, you had a question there about well, was the the risk of vertical integration being priced into the stocks? And when I started in this industry, you know, I, I would have said, oh, absolutely. I mean, I can't be the only person looking at vertical integration, and, and I wasn't obviously. But you would think, oh, the market is efficient; it knows so much. Like, there's so many analysts and intelligent people out there. They're definitely thinking and talking about this vertical integration risk, and. Mm-hmm. Now, this is probably more unique to cannabis and developing industries, but that's just not the case, guys. Like you start to learn the machinations of what's under the surface. And a lot of people just spend time, including a lot of people who should know better, spend time eating up the surface news and never dig deeper into the actual, you know, court cases and what's going on. And and trust me, I'm sure truly you've had a whole team looking at vertical integration, the case and, and knowing all about it. But they're not sharing that with the public, right? The the average investor and even some people writing some pretty big checks are sometimes totally asleep at the wheel mm-hmm. in terms of what's going on under the surface. And, and that's really, really important for me uh, as a learning experience that you have to be totally aware of what's going on in, on your own. Yeah, you've got to do your own due diligence and you've got to take your investments into your own hands, right? And And, and I think you said it the best is that, yeah, the company does have that information, but they're not going to go out and say it because it doesn't benefit them. Well, and, and there's like, look, there's f- to their, um, to their uh, credit, like there's probably 10 or a hundred risks that they're thinking about all the time. Yeah, exactly. Right? They can't and, be and, going out every day and saying, Hey, here's a hundred things that might sink us. Yeah, exactly. It'll just kill the company. <laughs> yeah. It's also not productive, right? It's yeah. not productive to say, here's a hundred things no one's talking about that, you know, could be an issue, right? Exactly. But, so, and Abby, I want to pass this over to you a little bit because, you know, you're somebody I learned a lot about when it comes to taking the temperature of the market, understanding momentum, and trying to get a finger on the pulse of what other people are saying, and then relating that back and saying, okay, this market or this sector is on fire right now because these people are paying attention, right? And and sort of riding that wave, and you know, that's really really important. Um, to understanding why stocks are moving a certain way. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's really important, I would say, to understand what sector is going to 
to what what the next next thing is and and what i mean by that is let's let's use the cannabis market as an example right so there was a whole especially in, in when i'm talking about this in this scenario we're going to use 2017 2018 canadian cannabis mm-hmm. right um when we looked at a lot of the financiers and this was before i knew anything in the sector before i knew these names but when i looked at a lot of the financiers they were there was a, a group of financiers right that kind of came in they sort of built up these companies and the company started to do well. And then when the psychedelic market came, it was the same people that moved over there. Mm. Right. So I started looking, I obviously went backwards and I said, okay, well, these guys were also involved in mining and these guys were also involved in this and this and this, and these sectors caught up right before these guys got in. Right. Um, and now is it that these guys have like more information than, than we do? Maybe they do. Is it that these guys are creating these sectors? Maybe, maybe they are. I have no idea. But what, what commonality that I saw was that, um, when this group of financiers come in and typically they're pretty high up, they're very wealthy, they've done certain things. And what I noticed was the reason that these, like these guys can do what they do is they can support these companies, these startup companies better than you and I can, right? They have sure. deep pockets. So people deep always pockets, say deep networks. They've made a lot of money with a lot of investors. So exactly. people trust them. And they, and they can do strategic, like they can do strategic introductions, right? Where like that company that they're financing might not necessarily have access to. So they sure. can, they do provide value beyond their capital is what I'm trying to say here. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it's a very important um, factor to remember, right? Because especially when you get pitched a really new deal, people will typically tell you who like the lead investor is. And the reason mm-hmm. that they tell you this lead investor is not just because, hey, look how great this person's track record is, but it's usually like, look, this is a very wealthy individual, right? Right. For you and I, we have something called paper losses. If these stocks go down to, you know, go down half their value, it's a paper loss, right? We haven't mm-hmm. really realized it. We can kind of keep it on our screen. We can do, and it can, and it can rebound. For early venture, paper losses are very difficult right? Because they don't really exist. So for example, if a, if you have a venture company and they start running out of money and their mm-hmm. stock and, it's, and it becomes reflective of their stock price, well, guess what? For them to go back up, that early financier has to put more money into the company, mm-hmm. right? So if they're not willing to refinance that company or if they don't have the means to refinance that company, it's really difficult for that company to start doing well. And these guys will only refinance companies where they see the hype train building up. They hmm. see the the momentum sort of coming, right? They see the retail come, they see the institutions come. So that's sort of, it's, it's a really long-winded answer to explain how I learned to take the temperature of the, of the market. Um, and then from there, I started looking at trading volumes, right? Like um, a great company actually is one of your favorites is, uh, is, Ascent, is Ascent, right? I don't know if it's still one of your favorites, sure. but Ascend's price moves a little bit. Like I, I think it goes from like eight to $9 here or there, mm-hmm. right? This is Canadian. Um, but it's if you US look actually, at their- yeah. Is it? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, a, a dot U. So yeah, it's it's US. And if you look at their volume, they're pretty lightly traded, right? Very so lightly. Like, yeah. Yeah. So my, I had a friend who was like, "Oh, I should have bought a cent." He was at eight dollars, and I was like, "Well, how much were you looking to buy at eight dollars?" And he's like, "I don't know, like X number of dollars." I'm like, well, if you had done that, the price would have been ten dollars. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and he and he did, he couldn't understand that. Right. And right. I was like, no, no, no. So like, you have to you have to you have to like look, get level two quotes. You got to see this, this, and this. Right. So what I'm getting at with that is I start looking at like volume, right? Volume is a good indicator of, okay, is there actually like means to this, or is it just a couple of people who are buying and selling? Right. Right. Um, right. And, and sorry to go back to your example here on the psychedelic market, right? Like it's understanding the mechanics of sometimes how these deals are put together. Like to your point, if somebody shows up and say, Hey, the, here's a deal you go, okay, whatever. And it goes, Oh, the, the back, the main backer is Peter Thiel. You go, huh? Yeah. Okay, that you know now you feel more confident that there's going to be a higher chance of success. You know, going back to that that previous point about what are the risks. You know, a big risk for any new venture company is just running out of money. Mm-hmm. Right? Before you can get to the promised land, people give up on the deal, the market softens, whatever. If you have Peter Thiel as a backer, you feel pretty good that you know if he's putting his name on it, he's going to come in and write another check into the company. Now, well, even if he doesn't write another mm -hmm. check into the company, right? Because remember I said, those people like that bring more than just their capital. The fact that you just said, Hey, if Peter Thiel's in this company, they can now go to different family offices, different investors and say, Hey, well, Peter Thiel believed in us. And that's brand equity that these guys already have before they've even developed. And, and the reality is deals like that. You're probably never even going to get to look at like, those are probably going to be done, you know, uh, subscribe from his network before you ever get to sniff at it. In fact, mm-hmm. if you do get to see a deal 
that Peter Thiel is backing. You have to ask yourself, why am I seeing this? Right? Exactly. Why is, exactly. Why, is, why is his network not taking well, this down? Well, a better already? question to ask, actually, and you can ask the company this, is what valuation did Peter Thiel get in at? Mm. Right? That's a very, and remember, we, we, you and I always talk about why cap tables are important. Because right. yes, Peter Thiel might be backing this company up and they might, uh, and, and he might have written a large check. But if you wrote a large check and the company was worth, I don't know, $10 million and you're seeing it now at $100 million, right. guess what? Like that's it's 10 times more expensive than what Peter Thiel got in at. And that's why you're seeing it at that value, right? <laughs> exactly. It's your turn to, to pump it up. And by the way, now that I'm saying that, I just realized, I just remembered a big company that Peter Thiel uh, and I think the PayPal mafia uh, backed was Tilray. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Tilray is a Peter Thiel. Uh, I don't know how involved he was, but his I remember his name being honored at one point, and and the whole promise was automation, and we're going to revolutionize the cannabis industry, and you know he, he sort of you don't hear much about Peter Thiel and Tilray anymore, but, <laughs> but that, that that is just a funny thing I, I I remembered. But so so the point I'm getting to here is that you know one thing when I got into uh, investing in the stock market for cannabis is learning how you know the underbelly of how these deals actually work, especially in junior, especially in venture. Um, and, and Abby, you're somebody who had a lot of experience in that. And, and that was, you know, one thing I learned a lot from you. Um, and once you start learning more of the mechanics of how these things work, I think you really go away from this idea of, wow, the the tape is always right. The, the stock price is perfectly efficient. And you start realizing like, no, like especially in illiquid markets, um, which cannabis, especially right now in downtimes, is very illiquid. You start realizing, like, man, there's all kinds of reasons these prices move up and down, and and I really lick my lips when there's a a stock that I think is a solid company and has great fundamentals, but just has a disconnect on on the technical side, and for whatever reason, you know, has uh, pressure on it. Could be a share unlock, like we saw with Verano. Um, you know, could be just, you know, a seller who has to get out. Um, that happened to Trulieve back in, I think, 2018 and probably 2019, I think, you know, they had one seller who just dumped the stock. Uh, but understanding what's going on behind it really gives me a lot of confidence. Doesn't mean I'm right, but it gives me a lot of confidence <laughs> um, when I see price weakness to be able to go deeper and double down. And and But I always try to ask myself, what do I think is going on here? What is creating this opportunity? Um, and and is the market right or are they overreacting? And can I take advantage of that? For sure, for sure. And you know what? That that's uh, very well said. Um, I like to do that as well. But like, I would like to say, you know, using a share unlock as an as an example. If you're entering a position for the first time, it's very it it it's you should really look at you know when if if there is a share unlock. Right or when the share unlock is going, and you should sort of um, factor that into consideration when you're creating your market cap. Right, going back into the fully diluted, like you know how I was saying that sometimes when warrants are so out of out of the money, I don't really factor them in, into my like what I think the the market cap of the company should be. Right, um, when you have share unlocks, you should add that in, especially if you're if it's like in the near future or if it's something that you're trying to um, like well, if you're planning to hold past that share unlock. Right, but sorry, the the share unlock that like the unlock doesn't matter to the valuation. You should always be including all those shares. Period. Just because they're locked up doesn't mean you exclude them for the valuation, right? Now you might, you know, to your point, you might look at the float. No, so no might, yeah, that's right. That's what I meant to say. When you look at the float, or when you right. look at like when you look at the the company, and you because what's I guess I don't know if it's Yahoo Finance. I don't use Yahoo Finance. I use Stockwatch. When you see Stockwatch, when you look at their share like shares outstanding count, they don't include unlocked or restricted shares because they're not part of the public float. Really? Well, I, did, yeah. I didn't know that. That is a huge oversight on their part. I mean, that's crazy. I, it's, 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 you know, don't, don't take my word as gospel on that. Like do that. Cause there has be, have been some in, inconsistencies. Um, Gage was a good one actually. And there was, there was another company, but always with Stockwatch, like they're, fundamental shares outstanding really take that number with a grain of salt um sometimes it's, it'll usually be different than what yahoo finance and everything shows um literally right next to the fundamentals link in Stockwatch is the cedar link if you're looking at a canadian company you can just click that and it'll literally give you you can just go through cedar and find out what what it should be right um, but right. but that, like if you guys are you know using that like you know test it before you just say oh yeah this is this is always the case because it could not be the case there could be inconsistencies 
And talking about unlocks, by the way, um, Ascend is a good example. They have an unlock coming up November 1st. So that'll be the first major unlock. And and again, going back to trying to understand these things and, and learn, right? Like, don't feel the need that you have to have it all on day one. Like, things also change. I mean, I remember I was worried about truly having a really big unlock. Um, and it was kind of misguided. And, and I, I see that now because the truly had already unlocked a lot of their float. And so it was right. th- by the numbers, it was a big unlock, but most of the shares had already been unlocked. So it was the unlock now was mostly the founders. It's very unlikely those people are going to turn around and dump their stock and hammer it, right? Especially since so, they already had some of their shares unlocked previously. I, so, I would, sorry, go ahead. I, I was, well, you know, here, I'll let you finish. Sorry. Well, and then, so the flip side of that is like Verano. Um, Verano has another, uh, uh, like has more unlocks coming up and people are worried about that. But, you know, if you actually think about it, like they unlocked a gigantic amount of shares on the first one. And that's what we're working through. I don't think the subsequent unlocks are going to hurt or matter as much because it's the same people just getting more of their shares unlocked, right? So the first unlock, those people have been locked up for years and years and years, and they want to get some liquidity. But after they get some liquidity, they don't really need to blow out all of their shares. So that's my thinking on why the first one matters a lot more than the subsequent ones. I, I, I'm going to disagree. I would really say, and this is not to, about Verano or Ascendant as at all. This is literally the, just the thought process. Sure. Um, for for somebody who's been involved in a lot of private deals, yes, the fact I love the fact that you said these guys have been locked up for a couple, like you know, a couple years or wh- whatever time. But the most important thing that you got to ask, and it goes back to the the question, the the example that I use with Peter Thiel, is that you got to ask at what valuation did these guys get in? At what price did they get in? If they got in at a dollar and the stock is trading at ten dollars, that's a ten x lift. Right? Yeah, that's true. They're gonna take half that money off the table. You know, yep. like they're going to take some of it. And, and I shouldn't say that with so much confidence because I'm obviously not them, but a rational person would be like, okay, well, I'm up 10 X on this company. Yep. You know, I still believe in this company. I still think this company is going to be great. Oh, guess what? I was also given warrants. Okay. Let's take some risk off the table and keep some of it still on there. So you well, will see pressure. Yeah. No, no. So you're absolutely, I agree with you, but th- that's why I'm saying that first unlock when they get half of it unlocked. Mm-hmm. Then they go, look, I've got to sell. I've got to get some risk off the table. Even if the price is tanking and I think it's cheap, I'm going to sell because I want some liquidity. Yeah. My point is after they sell, let's say they sell half, they sell all of it. Then, you know, so they, they had 10 shares, they got five, they sell all five. When they get their next unlock of one and, you know, one and a half shares, 15%, right? I don't know that they're going to blow through that unlock as well. You get what I'm saying? Like they've yeah. already taken some profit. Some people might, but I just don't so- think it matters as much as the first one. Let's just say if I was in that deal and let's say I had those numbers and I looked at everything that's going on today, I would mm-hmm. probably take some risk off the table. I'd be like, look, I'm worried about, you know, there could be a new Fed. I'm worried about this Evergrande thing happening in China. I'm worried about the fact like, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of things that I'm worried about. I'm sure. going to take some money off. That's how I would look at it. I would always try to put myself in the shoes. All I'm trying to say is if you guys are going through this and you find out, hey, the, there's this much restricted shares, you then get what's called the schedule. And the schedule tells you what day the unlocks happen. Mm-hmm. The next thing you got to find out is the valuation or the price that these people got in at, yeah. compare it to the stock price that it's trading at right now, and then put yourself in that situation. Like yep. visualize yourself in that situation. Be like, okay, yep. this the, these shares were issued in 2019. It's 2021 right now. That's you know two years um, plus, etc. Blah blah blah. You know, you, you can you, you like when you, when you're going through that. But these these are very critical, important things to consider. Um, yeah. And then that that'll give you a better gauge of you know how the people how, like how somebody's thinking and and how to look at share unlocks that's yeah, no, that, to t- totally totally fair and remember in verano's case those shares were issued in 2014 and 15 and 16 like yeah you know those people have been holding a long time uh so we'll again we'll see this is all a learning process yep yeah exactly right? we'll, we'll see how that plays out uh so last thing on that is is you know the pendulum swings between hype and despair you know february a lot of hype and all of us got caught up in it um now i think we're in the despair territory Try to invest through the cycle. Like when things are getting really hot, you know, be careful, but but you keep kind of investing in where you see value, where you see the opportunity. When things are really bad, you know, you got you keep going, right? You keep putting the money in. Um, and, and that's what I'm doing. Like the valuations are really let's go back to Verano here. Like, how, who knows how low it can go, right? We nobody knows, nobody can tell you how low it's gonna go. 
but you know, yesterday it hit almost 10 bucks. I was just pushing the chips in the middle on that name because I feel very com- uh, confident that within one, two, three years, we're going to see that re-rating. We're going to see that outsized pop on that name, right? But you're talking U.S. dollars here, right? Because Verona, has- U.S. dollars, yes, yes, okay, U.S. dollars. Sorry, good, good. Point. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Verona went to ten dollars. I would have bought that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so the my point just is, as you see the game being played, right? You you un- start to understand the swings that it has, and the swings are pronounced on being on the OTC, and. You just keep going through that. You, you don't get too excited. You don't get too low. You keep investing and you just keep learning throughout all of it. That's true. That's true. One thing I do want to say here, so, sorry, just because I got, I pulled the, the Verano stock chart up that you're looking in. Let's just go back to that whole unlock schedule and putting yourself in the uh, minds of the investors who got in. It's not the prettiest stock chart, right? So that you look at it, it starts at the top left, goes down to the bottom right. It's, mm-hmm. you know, this is just a very high level thing. If I knew nothing about the company, aside from the fact that, hey, you know, I gave these guys X number of dollars in 2014 um, and I didn't really follow up with them. I'm not saying that that's going to happen. That would also be a factor to keep into consideration when you're evaluating the impact of a share unlock. Yeah, look, look, great point you just made. And this goes to understanding the market, right? What I've seen and this is sometimes a little flabbergasting, but when stocks are going down, people really get scared about how low can it go. Yeah, yes. Right? Yes. And so to your point, the lower it goes, it's self self-fulfilling cycle. It goes lower. People go, oh, crap, I have to sell. Right? This yeah. could go down to $6. Like, mm-hmm. So people get really worried. And you kind of wonder, why are these people selling so much? Right? And, and maybe it's some people shorting. Who knows? But putting yourself in the shoes of people who might just be local you know, Illinois people who know nothing about cannabis, who just believed in somebody and wrote a check in six Mm -hmm. years ago, seven years ago, um, you know, as the price goes lower, they start to get more nervous. And the opposite is true. When the price is soaring through the roof, they go, well, hang on, I don't want to sell. This thing could double again. This thing could triple again. This could be my, you know, how I become a billionaire, right? So Mm -hmm. people don't want to, people make poor decisions on the way up and the way down. So that's that's a great point that you made, Abby. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and oh, I do appreciate that. Yeah, okay, so going to the end here, um, the last two points, which are really critical are, uh, be intellectually honest. So build your theories, write them down, test them. You know, a um, uh, person we talk about a lot is hedge fund Steve who's a friend. And one of the things I found about him is he was really a free thinker. He was always willing to um, you know, come up with his own ideas, but he was always willing to prove them wrong. Like I would get an email from him with this huge thesis. And then like a week later, he'd be like, oh, I just found this and this and this. I'm completely wrong. Forget about what I said. I love that. I love that more than anything. Like if, if more people did that, um, it, it would just be like the best thing ever. Uh, are you going to church or something? <laughs> I just hear something <laughs> in the background. It's, it's just funny. Um, but no, I, I really, 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 really uh, admire somebody who can kind of come back and just say, hey, this was a thesis. This is why I've been able to disprove it. Or this is why I don't no longer believe it. Yeah, exactly. And and that acknowledgement of, you know, what he, something he said to me is it, it's better that I disprove myself than somebody else. Right. So like having this idea that you invest so much time and energy in and then investing a bunch of time and energy to try to try to disprove yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I love that. And that has really helped me shape the way I think in that you have an idea, you make a big bet on something. The human brain often goes. Sorry, one sec. The human brain often goes and tries to look for why this is true and try to reinforce your idea. But what the best investors do is the opposite. Let's go look for why I'm wrong, right? Yeah. Let's go look for what I should be afraid of that I'm not, I'm not paying attention to. Um, and, and that is so, so good for being an investor. Um, and again, if you write things down and, you, you, and I need to do a better I, a job of this, but if you write down your theories, at, you can actually test them and be like, oh, where did I screw up? What can I learn from this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and it, and it's true. And that's something that I've recently started doing is going back and saying, hey, like, here's a thesis. I'm going to go disprove this thesis. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm learning more and more in California because my thing was, hey, California has been neglected for a long time. Um, I think it's going to be a great market. I really like it. Let's go. And now I'm like, oh, God, it's just uh, <laughs> really challenging out there. Like, guys, give me something, please. Yeah, right, right. Bad can go for, go to worse, yeah. right? So you got to be yeah, careful. Okay. And, and last point on that is think critically for yourself. 
take full ownership of your decisions. Um, you know, you are CEO, you are in charge of your own investment account. So uh, where your losses, learn from them. Don't blame other people for your mistakes. Like I'm a big believer that like, just because somebody put out a research note saying MedBen's going to be a $6 stock, that's not, you know, when, when MedBen fails, you don't go to them and say, well, that's your fault for saying six. No, you were the one who made that decision. Own mm -hmm. it, wear it, because then you learn from it. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And last, last thing is, you know, try to, so last thing is add value to other people, build networks and build relationships. And, um, you know, try to help each other out there online. Like people get into this weird game of like yelling at each other or like dissing each other or I'm right and you're an idiot. I mean, it's just such an unproductive habit of people to go online and say nonsense to each other. It's so much more productive to go in and try to build a network. Try to say, hey, who's giving out good information? Who seems like they're actually, you know, up to speed? What can I add? You know, how can we work on this together? How can we build something together? How can we win together? I mean, that, you know, to the earlier points about keeping systems, you know, if you're tracking, you know, Florida a lot and you link up with somebody who lives in Pennsylvania and somebody else who lives in Illinois, suddenly you have three people, you know, in your little network mm -hmm. tracking three different states with ground level information. I mean, that yeah. is really, really powerful. Very powerful. And there are people who are willing to put forth the same effort that you are, right? And it's you're meeting the right people. One one other thing that I really want to say is not only important that, you know, you win together, but it's also important that when you lose together, because that will happen, there will be, you know, you're never going to call all winners. You understand why, right? And that's mm -hmm. the and 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 that's the best way when you have a good network of, you know, even I, I've had a lot of deals that have gone south. And there's some people that I'll call and I'll say, Hey, like what happened here? And they'll give me a very detailed explanation. They'll explain what exactly everything happened. And there's other people that I will call and they're like, I have no idea. This is, you know, the, the market ebbs and flows. And it's like, okay, well, that's a person who I need to just sort of be more cautious of when they bring me the next deal. Yeah. I mean, I always have a great idea. I'm like, what happened here is I let my friend Abby talk me into investing in a deal that I didn't like. <laughs> and now exactly. I have tax law selling to harvest. Exactly. <laughs> it's offsetting all your gains. No, <laughs> the deposit you put on the Ferrari, you're exactly. going to get back. Don't worry. Exactly. And look, I mean, when it comes to building the relationship and networks, I mean, again, it goes back to this point of like, what are you looking for? Are you looking for somebody to tell you why everything you think is right? Like that, that to me is pretty gross. Like I want people who can take a theory and poke holes in it. And you, you know, it's, it's funny, you might not expect this, but people that we invest alongside, a lot of times we'll have deals that we like and they'll invest in it and I won't and vice versa. And before I make my investment decision, you know, if they pass, I'll always chat with them and say, look, why did you pass? Like what's going on? You know, is there something fundamentally wrong that I'm missing? Or is it just not a fit for you? And and they'll try to, you know, I'll really value honest and critical feedback saying, this is what I didn't like about the deal. Mm -hmm. I might still invest. I often still invest, but at least I have an idea of what some of the negatives are from a third party who's unbiased. Yeah, that's, that's actually, um, that's very interesting. Going back to, you know, maybe, maybe I should do that. I'm just, I'm just thinking, of, hey, why did you pass on this deal? It's like, uh. Yeah. I mean, that, that to me is so critical. Um, and, but do you find that you get the right answer? Sorry, I just, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but yeah. do you find that like you get an honest answer? Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't we have an honest answer? Because the thing is we're, we look at deals all day long together. Like why would these people lie to me? There's nothing in it for them to lie. Mm -hmm. Right. Like why? like it's not, you know, we're friends also, right. We talk all the time. We, we, you know, see each other when we're in, in the respective cities. Like there's no value to them and lying to me. And, and, you know, we're at a point where we're very honest with each other and we try to be honest with ourselves. They go, well, look, we're just kind of tired of cannabis right now. Or, you know, we didn't like, you know, this person's background or whatever the thing is, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, there's, we get really good feedback from each other. And I, the best feedback we get is when we disagree on things. That to me is really valuable. Gotcha. That makes sense. So, you know, we called this podcast the Cannabis Investing Network for a reason. And the idea when we were starting out was to build a network, right? And that's really what we've accomplished over two and a half years. And, and you know, hopefully we're just getting started. Um, but I can't emphasize enough to people, like, when you find people who are, you know, sharpening their sword and, and doing everything right, um, 
really work on how can we connect? How can we, you know, talk on the phone? How can we get to know each other um, and trade information? And, and a big part of that is, you know, if you're newer, try to ask, like, how can you add value to other people's lives? Right? I mean, everybody can go and, for example, make an Excel sheet with the OMMU data, right? So that, that's just an example of something you could say, hey, here's a, here's a thing I track, right? And, and somebody else might say, oh, that's awesome. Here's a thing that I track, right? And you build value together. Two, three, four heads are better than one. Um, and that can really help you improve your game in a very big way. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and, and I love that you say it, right? Like when you're, especially when you're starting out, you want to go to the network and say, you know, what can I, what value can I add? What can I do for you? You're making it about them. You're there getting something out of this just as much as you're getting something out of it. Uh, and you know, like you said, we started this two and a half years ago and there's, there'll be plenty more years to come for this because I think everybody who listens to this and you and I both believe in how big the sector could actually be. Um, the network that we've sort of cultivated here is unreal. And, um, I'm sure you're going to, you're going to, you know, as we're wrapping up this episode, um, I think you, you mentioned earlier that this is going to come out during MJ BizCon. So if this comes out during MJ BizCon, um, and it's, you know, and you're listening to it and you're at MJ BizCon, <laughs> reach out to us because we're probably still there and we're, we're, we're probably still here, uh, speaking in future tense now. Um, and, uh, we're still trying to put a little soiree together. So, um, you know, come on out and let us know. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, but okay. That that's basically, uh, the episode here, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, always looking to improve our game. Uh, always curious what your thoughts are on what some of your big learning lessons were. CINpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decisions, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and st strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.